So, gathered for the second half of our program this afternoon and in the auspicious setting of the new temple. And um, at the onset here, I want to express my gratitude and appreciation for all the devotees who worked so hard in extreme conditions, even record-breaking temperatures and so forth, to bring us to this uh, point where we can actually sit here on the foundation of the temple and conduct discourse and glorification of Lord Nityananda. Mm. And in that, in connection with that, then we we are in the midst, I should say, of the uh, ceremony that uh, involves the installation of the Anantasesh deity in the foundation of the temple. So we've brought Sri Anantadev from the old temple to the new. Pujala Raga Patagodava Bhangi Matala Harijani Kitanarangi. And after the discussion, little discussion about the the ceremony and then discussion about uh Sarbumbata Charja then there'll be Kirtan and I'll climb down under the foundation here with the deity and we place him in his throne under the altar that's been arranged in the uh, northeastern corner of the building. <coughs> altar is actually a separate building from the rest of the building the way it was designed. And there he'll be covered up and give support to all of our devotional activities. It is said that Gurudev is the foundation of our, that our bhakti should be built on. Faith in the Guru is the foundation that our bhakti is built on. Then, sometimes inappropriately so, Srinivan Nityananda Prabhu is referred to as Akhanda Guru Tattva, the, the source of the, the Guru Tattva. And it's mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita that, yes, what is it? Among others, Vishnu's Karanakshai, Shurakshai, Karbodakshai, Vishnu, Anantasesh also is one expansion of Nityananda, who is Balaram himself. So, where the devotional activities in the temple are performed appropriately, he's installed in the foundation, giving us a good foundation to grow our devotional uh, life and the history of the temple on. Really, the deity of Ananta Seish appearing like a serpent, of course, serpents live in the ground, they come out. When we did the foundation, pour here, then poured the cement and so forth. <laughs> then the, the one fellow came, he was the pumper. So he had a long, long black hose. I told the devotees, there is the first manifestation of Ananta Tesh. Coming to pour the foundation. Takes a little vision <laughs> to see all these things. So in this way, the mystics, Hindu, Gaudiya, saints, and so forth, they 
envisioned like this, the Rishis, they've envisioned like this. They, as I've said before, they have a certain approach to the world that, that affords them this poetic uh, vision of the nature of being and reality with all types of deities, personalities, and, and so on and so forth. And the nature of that approach is that it's, it's in a sense, the antithesis of the way the empiric uh, mind approaches the world and explores the nature of reality. In other words, for example, in modern science, we explore what the world's about, what's underneath it, what supports it, what's, what's inside the, the tiniest particle, what's it made up of, and so forth, but largely with a view to exploit it for the purpose uh, that appears in our own mind, which is a very small purpose. The purpose of, uh, uh, that appears in our mind is, is one that's not going to be entirely in concert with the purpose that appears in someone else's mind. Mind is informed by sensual input and it makes determinations of good and bad, happy and sad. We live in that world of duality and our happy and our sad may be different than another person's happy and sad, so there's, we are at odds with one another. You know, we have to come out, this is yoga, from the small world of the mind. And how to do that? It's created by, by this uh, taking, by taking, exploiting. We talked about karma. This is the realm of exploitation. To see the world as an object of my enjoyment and my sense of I is derived from my sense of my my attachments. My identity is based on my attachments. So, you're going to get a particular reading of the world, whatever you may find, mathematically speaking or scientifically speaking, that may be factual. Nonetheless, the way you, you read the record and so forth will be different. If you look at it from the, through a lens of exploitation, then if you seek to look at the world from the lens of giving rather than taking, through the lens of love, it's going to appear differently to you. Same thing is going on. Same facts and so forth, but viewed differently, it speaks differently to us. So the rishis, great devotees, acharyas, they look through the lens of love, not to exploit the world, but to serve it. They saw it in relation to Bhagwan, and saw themselves as servants of Bhagwan and servants of even all manifestations of material nature by seeing them in relation to him. So they got a very, because they approached it with love, they got a poetic and romantic response from the world. And so they saw gravity. You know, Newton was a thoughtful fellow. He saw the tree, the apple fall from the tree. So many people saw apples fall from trees, but he saw it and then he thought, hmm, this means this. So he had a certain understanding. What goes up must come down, something like that. And this way, the principle of gravity is explored. So the Rishis, they kind of saw this uh, gravity, this holding things together, as this great uh, serpent, Ananta. They saw a personification of that, that principle. It's mentioned throughout the text that this Baldev is this Sandini Shakti. Sandini Shakti means existential potency of the Swarup Shakti. Within the Swarup Shakti, we have existence, we have knowledge, and we have ananda, bliss. So, uh, sandini sambit, ladini. It corresponds on a lower level with sat, chit, ananda, with dharma, artha, kama, rajas, tamas, sattva, on so many different levels there's, there is a correspondence. Sandini shakti, 
personified, the deity personified over the Sandini. Sandini means existence. So that is Baldev. Expands the Dom, the domain of love. And his partial expansion expands the domain of exploitation, the world, material existence. It is woven, as it's mentioned, Kabirash Goswami says, he's woven into the fabric of the whole of existence, like the, what do they call it? The woof and the wharf? Warp and the whip. Warp and the whap? Whip. Like in a knitting, I guess you go this way and then you go this way also. It's woven into the fabric of existence, this Baladev. It's not a dead thing. He's behind it, backing that. Hmm? So, at any rate, different manifestations, one of which is this Anantasayishan today, this is the tradition. We install the Anantadesh in the foundation, and this building is built on this, this stone, this, this deity, hmm? a living thing. And we hope that our activities will be such that with this, such a vision that these rishis had will be afforded us. We see the world in a, in a poetic way, through the breath of the Vishnu. It's a subjective kind of reality. How you approach it, then the world will respond and show itself. See what a charming way in which the Rishis saw everything. And it's all based on the method of their approach to the thing. Anyone can understand this point. How you approach a thing determines what you will get out of it, what you will see. We find a lot of correspondence between what the Rishis explained was the nature of the world and what science in our modern day explains. A lot of, co- lot of differences, but a fair amount of correspondence also, interestingly enough. And it leads us to believe, of course, is, uh, to understand that we're examining the same thing. They're seeing the same thing, but describing it differently based on, again, their method of approach. So I would say we're in the midst of that, and then we're also in the midst of our discussion about the uh, two sadhana siddhas, two new recruits to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission, who came not from Golok, but from from this world and from heaven. We talked about Raj Prataparudra from this world, from the realm of karma, he came. And this evening we're going to speak about Basudev Sarvabhoma, the Bhattacharya, who came from heaven, Brihaspati, the guru of the gods, appearing on earth. And he appeared uh, in Vidyanagar, in the greater Godamandala, just near Navadvip Dam, the abode of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And he was a scientist, logician, mathematician. And as I mentioned this morning, briefly, He's, uh, there are, in, in Indian history, uh, history, in the history of mathematics, the world over for that matter, he's a prominent figure, as is India for that matter. Albert Einstein said, we owe a great tribute to the Indians because they taught us how to count. And without counting, he said, well, <laughs> we couldn't, this is the basis of all of our scientific calculations. So the number system that we have, the decimal system, negative numbers, zero, all these things, this all came from India, Indian thinkers. So when you look at the history of mathematics, then you will find this name, Vasudev Sarvabhauma, a very prominent figure. At one time he was the most prominent logician 
in all of India. As I said this morning, he went to Mithila, which was the capital of the Nabonyaya, was a new kind of logic that was created by a fellow, maybe his name was Gangadas, and he wrote a book called Tattva Chintamani. It was such a wonderful book that it, 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 it like I say, it started a whole new school of, of logic. This is a very dry affair, but uh, <laughs> the Goswamis were schooled in this logic. Mahabrabhu was schooled in this. That's where his name, Nimai Pandit, comes from. He was so expert in this logic that he could give an argument and convince everyone and then give the counter to that argument and convince everyone and then convince everyone back again to his original position. He was just a young lad, a teenager. He had the power of, of logic and reasoning that uh, was so extraordinary that he could defeat... I mean, when he defeated Keshav Kashmiri, who was the, the great pundit, he was such a big pundit in debate that when he came to Navdweep, all the old pundits left town because they didn't want to be defeated by him. And they thought, well, Nimai Pandit's here. If he defeats Nimai Pandit, we'll say, anyway, one of our boys was defeated by you. What's that? That's nothing. And if Nimai Pandit should defeat him, then the glory of Nadia will be. They thought of Nadia in terms of being a seed of, of learning. And they thought that learning was about logic and reason. They thought that reason was the ultimate arbitrator. And so Mahaprabhu went there in, in their midst and he became the best of them. Of course, he didn't take credit for that. Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya, he went to Mithila. He was older than Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He was the, like his father was a classmate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's father. And they were close. And so his father, Sarvabhoma's father, knew Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's father and knew his son. Vishwam Barmishra, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sarvama realized this when Chaitanya Dev came to Puri and had fallen into a trance in the temple and Sarvama, who was in charge, had him taken to his house and he revived him and then inquired from him about who he, what his previous situation was as a householder before he had taken sannyas. It was a very curious thing because he was only 25, 24, only 10 years older than you, Rati. <laughs> And he became Sri Krishna Chaitanya, a sannyasi. <laughs> now you can imagine if, if a young 14-year-old girl or 18-year-old, especially a girl in this age, well, in the previous age, it would have been more significant. But a young boy, 24 years old, somewhere anywhere between those ages, youth, to speak philosophy is going to get the attention of everyone. Extraordinary. And to see youth used in such a substantial way. If one can understand the value of youth and harness it for such a high purpose, that's extraordinary. Youth is valuable. Everybody wants youth, except for young people. They want to be older. <laughs> <laughs> they don't understand the value of youth. The whole world is interested in youth. The politicians want the youth. The schools want the youth. The military wants the youth. The corporations want the youth. Everybody wants youth. Old men want young girls. It's terrible. Old people want to be young. Youth. Such a valuable commodity. No wonder then. The absolute truth appears as youthful. Kishore. Nanda Kishore. 
he's appearing envisioned in the hearts of the rishis as a youthful adolescence it's saying to us this is such a valuable time adolescence At the same time it's difficult to take advantage of everybody wants to take advantage of it for their purpose but for the young person himself or herself to fully take advantage difficult to harness that youth you feel like you can do anything everybody wants you <laughs> you feel yourself very important valuable so to see through all of that and see that the value of youth is that it that, it, that habits formed at that time will stay with you forever and then to, to, to develop the habits that will be most useful for you that will make young people chase after you when you're an old person like Prabhupada <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. he was 70 years old that's pretty old and we were young, 19, 20 years old, 21, 18, and running after him, wherever he would go. So many old people we were rejecting and their values and so forth. But this, this gentleman, then we would do anything for him. So to use your youth in such a way that youth will always chase after you. Prabhupada said in the very last, I was with him a month before he left the world, he said, Someone said, well, you're old now, Prabhupada. He always said, we are all young boys, just young, actually. Hmm? So, this is Krishna consciousness, actually, to take advantage of youth and stay young forever. You know, there's a saying, there's a feeling that, that um, people have in youth, they have ideals and values and so forth. But then, after a while, they grow up and realize, well, anyway, that was just youth. But Krishna consciousness says to us, no, it wasn't just youth. You can realize those things. Life can be as beautiful as it as it seems it should be. Mm-hmm. When you're youthful and you get you become disappointed finding out, oh, I thought he was such a nice guy, but he's actually like that, or she's like that, or the world's like this. Like that. You know, that sense that comes in youth, what could be, that can be realized. That this is what Krishna consciousness comes to address. So if a young person can can harness their youth and use that to form habits for bhakti. To develop bhakti sanskar, oh, that is so valuable, and people will be attracted to that. And then when they speak philosophy, everyone will listen. Mahaprabhu Sri Chaitanya Dev was like that. He came to Puri like that. 24 years old and beautiful. He wasn't like, well, you know, he was deformed, so he took sannyas and he couldn't function in the world very well and couldn't get a wife. Oh. Chaktva Sudhus Chadusuripsitarajlakshmi. Chaktva, he gave up Raj Lakshmi. You couldn't have a better wife. Lakshmi Priya, Vishnu Priya, consorts of, of Narayan, Gaur had as his wives. He gave them up for us. He told Vishnu Priya Devi, In this Leela, our only business is to cry. Cry for the fallen souls. I will leave you for their sake. You give me your blessing. So we offer our pranam to Vishnu Priya Devi. She gave the blessing to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Yes, take sannyas. At such pain of separation. For us, she did that. And the, the pride of all of Nadia. Everyone loved him. Everyone. Everyone wanted his, uh, patron, his uh, patronage and his, his participation and to have the sight of him. And when he went to Puri, when he took sannyas, it just like this kind of news rippled throughout Nadia like, Nimai Pandit will take sannyas. Nimai Pandit will cut his hair and take sannyas. Sannyas, frightful thing. Live in the forest, people think. Oh, my God. 
no, no, no marriage, no children, no social life. Oh my God, <laughs> what kind of life is that? Shocking, painful austerities he will have to undergo, and they don't know. It's a happy life, <laughs> so happy. Hmm? No money, happy. <laughs> he came then to Puri, and when Sarvabhuma saw him, he thought, oh, this young boy has taken sannyas. How can he possibly remain as a sannyasi? So he had a natural affection, attraction for him, and he inquired from him, as I say, and found out, oh, you, you're the son of Jagannath Mishra, well, my, my father knew your father's father, and they went to school together, and so this, this hometown kind of bond was realized by Sarvabhoma. He also came from Nadia, and he made Nadia famous by the power of his logic. He went, as I said this morning, to Matila, where was the seat of Nabanyaya, the new kind of logic, was sweeping across India. And they kept the book Tattva Chintamani there. No one could take the book or any copy of the book. No one could copy it. In those days, they would copy the book and then take it by hand. So books weren't as readily available. No one was allowed to copy. Students could come to Matila, they could learn. Navanyad, then they would have to go from there. So Navat, the capital of learning in India would be Matila. So all the pundits they were, of that place, they were very proud of that. But this Sarabhoma, everyone's proud of their own hometown. He wanted to make his town famous. So he came, he learned the Navanyad there, and he memorized the whole of Tattva Chintamani. Then he went to Nadia, back to Nadia, and there he started his school. And he became the most famous logician in all of India. And Nadia became the seat of learning. And our Chaitanya Dev appeared there in Nadia, in the seat of learning. Not in, you know, Africa or in Australia, in an aboriginal village amongst uneducated people, anything like this. Krishna was just a coward, just like living in the jungle practically. But appearing as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, a Paka Brahman, appearing in a place of, of learning. We should understand. Vrindavan and Navadweep, they're the same. There's a lot of knowledge in Vrindavan, although it doesn't look like it. Those gopis don't seem to be educated girls, but when they appear in Gorlila as Goswamis, you say, oh, they had so much learning. Oh, my goodness. Nadia was the seat of learning, and Sri Krishna appeared there as Sri Chaitanya Dev. And what did he show? He showed the folly of learning, of knowledge, of logic and reasoning. How it can never answer all the questions of life, the question of life, how to be happy, how to be perfectly happy. You cannot figure that out, it's just in your head. But Sarvabhom had made that place famous. He was the most powerful logician in all of India. But you may say, but what about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? You said he was Nimai Pandit. He was, why wasn't he, why isn't he listed as the most famous logician in India if he was so learned? This is why. There was a student of Sarvabhom about the charge. His name was Raghunath, maybe Raghunath Shiromani. And he had a desire. His desire was to be the most famous logician in all of India. <laughs> Which, of course, the teacher, like Sarvabhama, would be proud of a student if a student could ex excel him and such and keep the glory of Nadia in terms of its being a seat of learning in, in, in place. So he wrote a book on logic. It was called Viditi. It's a famous book. And... One day he was riding on a boat across the Ganges with Nimai Pandit, classmate, although he was a little older than Nimai Pandit. And Nimai Pandit had a book. So Raghunath said, What is that book that you have? 
And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, oh, it's a book of logic I'm writing. And then Raghunath's heart began to tremble. He, my pundit's writing a book on logic. I've written a book on logic. And my desire is to be the most famous logician in the whole world. What will he write? So then he became a little nervous and Mahaprabhu said, would you like to read my book? Yeah. So Mahaprabhu gave him the book, so he began to read it. And as he began to read, he began to cry. And Mahaprabhu said, Raghunath, why are you crying? He said, well, because I've written a book and my desire in writing that book, it's a good book, but my desire in writing it was to be the most famous logician in all of India. When I read your book, I realize there's nothing in comparison to your book. My book will be just like, won't even be published if people read this. Hmm? My desire is, is lost. I can't ever realize my desire. Mahaprabhu said, oh, here, give me the book. He took the book back from Raghunath and he threw it in the Ganges. Hmm? In fact, and Raghunath became the most famous logician. He's also listed in the history books of mathematics in terms of contribution in Indian logic and so forth. Uchetana <laughs> Mahaprabhu was so kind. You want that? Take that. That's nothing. That's nothing. You want to be learned, known as the most learned person? Take it. That's nothing. To get the praying from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that is another thing. And that's what he's showing. What is this logic? Tarko apratishtanat. By reasoning, you can never come to conclusive knowledge. For every argument, there'll be another argument. We have our logic that we present Gaudiya Vaishnavism logically and so forth. And why did it appeal to us? Because we have some Sukriti from the past life, created in this life as well, with the grace of Vaishnavas that predisposes us psychologically to identify with this logic. Of course, it's a good logic, too. But the point is that logic, reasoning, language are limited in terms of expressing something that is greater than logic. It's beyond words. Vedanta Sutra says, the nature of the Absolute is such that one cannot say enough about it. Shankar reads that and says, the nature of the Absolute Truth is it's beyond words. Therefore, he concludes, silence. We should be silent. But when we, we read that, that, when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu reads that Sutra, it says, the Absolute is beyond words. And it means, therefore, not that you should be silent, but that you cannot say enough about him. Therefore, tabukatamritam, taptajivanam, that verse we quoted this morning in relation to Pratapurujya Maharaj, that he sang to Chaitanya in the garden, the words about Krishna, his words, and words about him, they're like nectar, like you cannot say enough about that. We can just, Bhagavatam <coughs> says, Oh, nigama kalpataro galitam phalam sukumukadamata drabasam vitam pipata bhagavatam rasam malayam mahuraho rasika bhuvi bhavuka. Drink the fruit of the tree, ripened fruit of the tree of Vedic knowledge, the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's intoxicating, he says. It will knock you out. And when you get up, drink it again, drink it again and again. So we are full of so many things to say. We can never say enough about Krishna. Shankar thinks, well, he's beyond word, you can't say anything about him. And we say, then you be quiet. Don't bother us with your Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> you have nothing to say, that's your philosophy. <laughs> your philosophy is that you have nothing to say, so sit down, be quiet, don't do anything, sit in the corner. 
we will move, we will dance, we will sing, we will say everything, whatever there is to be said. And we have no no limit to that. Hmm? You know, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasri Thakur was once questioned by a secular person, a person of the world, because he was publishing a magazine called Nadia Prakash. It was a daily, I believe it was a daily magazine, hmm? a spiritual magazine, uh, Nadia newspaper, Nadia Prakash. And his students used to go at the railway station in Calcutta. Nadia Prakash, Nadia Prakash, Nadia Prakash, like they used to say then. New York Times, get the Tribune here, get your Tribune here. <laughs> they would go like that. Nadia Prakash, Nadia Prakash, handed out at the railway station. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur liked this very much. Anyway, one guy asked, how can you publish in a newspaper about spiritual life every day? I mean, how is it possible? He said, every day that is nothing. He said, there are so many newspapers in Calcutta and so many in, De in Delhi and so many in New York and every day they're coming out and all this news just about the material world that's a small thing the spiritual world is so big and so much going on there we could publish a paper at every moment the problem is only this no customers <laughs> no customers hmm. so Chaitanya Mahaprabhu he made small of this this is an important lesson he became the biggest pundit bigger than Raghunath Shiramani bigger than Sarvabhama Bhattacharya and then he just threw the whole thing in the Ganges his whole life he threw, he became the Nimai Pandit and then he became Sri Krishna Chaitanya he became a devotee he manifested himself as a devotee and logic and all became insignificant to him he didn't even write a tika, a commentary he just wrote poems like Shikshastakam eight verses mad in love, singing, dancing so if there's any language to represent the absolute, and it will be song and poetry and, and, and this kind of thing, with feeling, emotion. It's, uh, so it's a doctrine of the heart, a doctrine of love, not of reasoning, not of logic, not of knowledge. But love, we should understand, is the highest knowledge. What does Krishna say in the Gita? Who knows? First verse of the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Who can cite it? Rajavidyam. He says, is the opening word, Raja Vidya. He says, I'm going to speak about Vidya, means knowledge, Raj, the king of knowledge. How does he conclude the chapter? Manmana Bhavamad Bhakto. This is the king of knowledge. Be a devotee. Love me, he said. Fix your mind on me. Be my devotee. That's the end of knowledge. Knowledge ends there. When you love, you know what to do. No question. And that knowledge is essential knowledge. Not just this knowledge we gather information, like a backpack of information we carry around burdening us. Hmm? Hmm? And when we want to further our material cause, we, we pull it out and show it. I know this, I know that. And here's my resume. Hire me here. And I, all this. <laughs> no, not like that. Essential knowledge. It's not a burden, but... It informs our action, and it informs the kind of action. It makes one completely happy. Yayatma, supersedity. Sabai pum sam parodharmo yato bhakti ruhukshaje. Ahoy tuki apasihata yatma supersedity. It fully satisfies the self, this bhakti. The Chaitanya Mahaprabhu showed that. He showed what? That bhakti is not illogical, that they're wrong. He appeared in Nadia as, as the seat of learning and all. He became the most learned person in Nadia. 
which means the most learned person in India, which means the most learned person in the world. I mean, in, in the sense what we're talking about. India has contributed considerably to the... And that's why you have so many Indians there like these. They live, you know, in Silicon Valley, <coughs> study computer science and everything. All these young men and women coming from Bangalore and everything. And thousands of them. Just south of San Francisco, Indian restaurant in every block. It's a fact. And they're all in the computer world. They like this math. <laughs> Science. I mean, very logical people. It's Vedantas. It's, it's, you know, their heritage is very logical, reasonable. Well thought out civilization. You're borrowed from them. Learned from them. That Pythagorean hmm? theorem. Yeah. It comes from India. Pythagoras, a student of someone in India. And to its credit, not taking credit. And in Western, all taking credit. <laughs> it's a little different mentality. <laughs> of course, nowadays Indians, Indians want credit too. They're confused by Western values to some extent. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he showed this, oh, this learning is a small thing. Knowledge is a small thing. His path was Jnana Prayashura Pashinamanteva. When Ramananda Roy said this, Mahaprabhu asked him, what's the goal of life and how to attain it? He said a number of things. Mahaprabhu said, I don't like that, I don't like that. Then he quoted the verse from Bhagavatam, spoken by Brahma. Four-headed Brahma means he had four brains. Very learned guy. He said, Jnana Prayashura Pashinamanteva. He said, this speculative way of knowing, just turning the brain for knowing and understanding, this is a folly, he said. This way of arriving at perfect knowledge and thereby perfect happiness should be rejected. It's a waste of time. He said in another verse, Shreya Shritim, what is it? Uh, famous verse. It's like beating the husk of the rice. If the rice has come out, what will you get? You know, if you take the husk of the rice, you beat it, then the rice comes out. And if it's gone and you keep beating it, what will you get? Nothing. This is just so much labor, that's all. Nothing you get from that. Tarko apratishtana. I cited it earlier from Vedanta Sutra. You get no pratishta, no standing, no, no foundation to stand on. That foundation that is secured only by logic can be taken out from underneath by another kind of logic. But that foundation, that standing and happiness that comes from bhakti, that cannot be taken out. No logic can defeat that. If you have taste for bhakti, it doesn't matter how logical anybody else is. <laughs> you turn every argument around. Ruchi can do that. Heart has come above intellect. No longer is our bhakti guided by intellect, but fully by heart taken over. When to speak of asakti, bhava, and prem. Therefore, shastranipun, sunipun, hmm? Mahabhagavad means he has that kind of logic. It's a spiritual logic. It has the answer for everything. Kind of an automatic, just super common sense answer. The answer is like, like that Alexander the Great was asked, it was said, whoever unties the Gordian knot will conquer India. And so, so many guys tried to untie that, they couldn't untie it. And so big chatriyas and this Alexander came and he said, oh, I can untie it as a young lad. He took out his sword and cut it. And everybody said, oh, we, I could have done that. But you didn't. Hmm? <laughs> he conquered India, actually. Some kind of special common sense.
This is bhakti. Probably would give those kind of answers to people. Someone once said to him, do you know everything? He said, yes. And then fellow said, how many windows are there in the Empire State Building? It's a big building in New York, famous building in New York. And Prabhupada said, as many as there are drops of water in an illusion of water. That was his answer. Just as quick as the guy asked him. It's like, Whoa. He was saying, I know everything. I know what are the gunas. Rajagun, Tamagun, Satvagun. What is illusion? I don't need to know the details. That's a waste of time. How many windows there are, how to put the scientific uh, uh, rocket ship together, not just details. I know what it is, the nature of the material experience. Because I'm above it, I understand it completely. And you are caught up in the details of it and don't understand what it's all about. That kind of super logic. When someone would say to him, Prabhupada and Goloka Vrindavan, how do they do this and how do they how does this work? He said, Why don't you go there and find out? <laughs> These kind of answers. <laughs> I call that Shastra Sunipu. Not just memorization of scriptures, of the verses and so forth. So this is the kind of, like I say, knowledge that's inherent in love. The kind of knowing that's satisfying. Mahaprabhu showed the folly of trying to arrive at perfect happiness simply through logic and reasoning. And he let the credit for that go to Raghunath. You don't mind what a loss for Raghunath, huh? <laughs> then he came around. As I say, he took sannyasi, came to Puri, and Sarvabhoma had relocated from Nadia to Puri, giving the place to, to Raghunath, his disciple. He came to Puri. And there, uh, Sarvabhoma used to teach sannyasis the Vedanta. Vedanta is, is one sense, it's sometimes called Nyaya Shastra, the logic of the scriptures. Vedanta is so many codes that Vyas wrote with a view to show, through aphorisms, through codes, how the vast body of sacred literature, all the Upanishads and Vedas, and so many books, so many verses, how they're all saying one thing. They, they seem to be saying so many different things, like a jungle of sounds going in so many different directions, Indra, Om, and uh, Shiva, Om, and Krishna, and this and that, and so many different, it's confusing, and scholars go in there and they try to understand anything. This is just like a confusion of different people's different opinions and so forth. And, well, Vyasa's sutras, the idea behind it was to show the concordance, how they all, how it all fits together, how it's all really saying, directly or indirectly, one thing. How it's all saying, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. Krishna's the Supreme Personality of God. And do bhakti to Him. That is the purpose of the Vedanta Sutra. But the Vedanta Sutra, as I say, it's in code, so sometimes it may be misinterpreted. That's why Vyas wrote the Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam is actually a commentary on Vedanta Sutra. And that's why Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, although an Acharya, he's Krishna, in the Leela of an Acharya, he didn't write a commentary on the sutras. An Acharya would become such when he wrote a commentary on the sutras, which would establish a school of thought, a way of understanding the scriptures. Mahaprabhu didn't write one because he said, hey, my opinion is that the Bhagavatam is a natural commentary on Vedanta Sutra. So we don't need, it's, it's all there in, in Bhagavatam. And what is Bhagavatam? It's obviously about Krishna Bhakti. Anyway, Sarvabhoma wasn't aware of that finer point, And he was teaching about the, teaching the sutras in a particular way. And he was teaching young sannyasis, primarily. So they would become firm in kind of like spiritual logic of 
what is the world and what am I? And so they wouldn't be attracted, distracted by the world and have to forego their, their vows on account of that. So he was a very you know, sober fellow. Even, even people would come to him from a lower sannyasa order. There was the Shankar had established ten orders of sannyas. Some were higher and some were lower. Some would come from a lower order and he would give them new cloth and he would initiate them into a higher order of sannyas. He was called a Chetra sannyasi, kind of like he like lived in the Dham and, uh, and he was uh, renounced. Although he was married, he was renounced. He had foregone childbearing and so forth at that point. And anyway, very sober fellow. As I said, at one time, before Raghunath, his student, he was the most famous logician in all of India. And so when he met Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he wanted to, he developed natural affection for him. He was very attractive. Then he found that, oh, we have a connection by our families, in fact. We come from the same place, even. I should help him. This was his thought. And what did, what did the devotees think? What are you talking about? You help him. He will help you. You, you are an old fool. You don't understand anything. You think you will help him? He is Bhagwan himself. And Sarvabhama would chuckle. <laughs> yes. You devotees are all very sentimental. You want to call him God. But we are not so foolish here. We know Shastra. So you have a sentiment, you're calling your friend God. Okay. You know, maybe, but, but what, is the, what does the Shastra say? So his brother-in-law, Gopinath, he was a bhakta. He had love for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He had received the kripa of Mahaprabhu, the mercy of Mahaprabhu. This is the way of knowing. How to get comprehensive knowing by mercy, by grace. It means this. If God wants you to know about him, you can know. If God doesn't want you to know, no chance. Not a chance. Just like those UFOs <laughs> we mentioned this morning. If they don't want you to see them, you can't see them. <laughs> and one man... Three men standing together, one person sees them, other two don't. Those are the stories, right? <laughs> so it's just an analogy to help us understand. If reality wants to show itself to us, if perfection wants to show itself to those who are in, in, in imperfection, it's possible. Think of it like this. Sridhar used to give this example. Can the finite know the infinite? If you're finite, then you have finite power of knowing, Right? So how can the finite know the infinite? Not possible. Except if the infinite, which can do anything, chooses to let itself be known to the finite. Logically, it means, mathematically speaking, it's impossible for the finite to know. And know means to understand, means to, means to be superior to. If you've understood a thing, then it's beneath you. Do you understand? If you've understood it, then you've got a grip on it, is the idea. So the finite, to grip the infinite and bring it within its, you know, fist. Oh, I've got it. That's not possible. Logically, it's not possible. But there's a super logic to this. What is that? Oh, but the infinite is infinite. It can do anything. So if it wants to reveal itself to the finite, then it's possible. It can do the impossible. We cannot do what is impossible, but God can do the impossible. So if the infinite wants to show itself to the finite, it can. That is bhakti. Bhagwan reaches out to us, 
makes himself available. He's completely independent, but he allows himself to be conquered by us, to pin to the ground. Sri Dham says, I won. Now you have to carry me on your shoulders. <laughs> Radhika says, I don't want that black snake to come around here anymore. Keep him out. Of course, really she wants him. She's just testing. But they say like, they can relate like this. Mother Yashoda can take and capture him, tie him up. Yogis are trying to capture him in their mind. Gopis are trying to forget about him. And they can't. How captured he is by them, in other words. So, infinite may make himself available to the finite, known to the finite, to be known, to be understood, to be captured. This is bhakti. It's possible. By starting from that side, where the word impossible, it doesn't exist in the dictionary in Goloka. Even Napoleon was a resourceful fellow. If you know the history of France and Europe, he conquered all of Europe. He was just a beggar, wasn't he? Twice, I think, he conquered. <coughs> they captured him, put him in jail. He talked his way out of jail and then became, then became the emperor. He said, impossible. That is a word in the fool's dictionary. Huh? He had that kind of high thinking. Anything's possible. This is our theory also. But we've developed it a little bit more than Napoleon. In Golok, this word impossible doesn't exist. Braja, all things possible. Jijiva says, it means like this, all things possible in relation to him, Krishna, centered on him, all possibilities. So if he wants to reveal himself to the finite, oh, he can, and in such a way that they can understand, the finite can understand the infinite. means conquer him. Ajita jitopi apitraistilokyam. Jnane prayashukdapasyanamante eva. Brahma said with those foreheads, forget this speculative way of trying to know everything. That is a waste of time, he said. I've thought it out in all four directions, and I've come to this conclusion. This is a waste of time. What to do instead? Stane stita shuti gatam Stay in your place and hear from Guru Parampara. Stane stita shuti gatam And then what happens as a result of that? The ajita. What does ajita mean? Ajita. Cannot be conquered. The unconquerable becomes ajita jito. The ajita become jita by this. This is the power of bhakti, power of love. You want to exchange notes with Krishna? What is the power of our thinking compared to his? Or the power of our physical prowess compared to his? We will get nowhere with this. But by his grace, we have some power to love. If we express that in relation to him, then... This is the Achilles heel of the Absolute. This is the way in which we enter to know Him, to conquer Him by love. He's susceptible to this. This is His weak point. Why? Because He's a lover. That's what He is. <laughs> he's a lover. So if you become a lover, then you become like Him. <laughs> Captured by Him. Yeah. He, he's mad. He's drunk on love. You become a lover. And, oh, a drinking partner. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get together and talk about it. How horrible is love? <laughs> How terrible it is. We can never give it up like this. Join him in this. This is Bhagavatam. That's what it is. Drink it and drink it again and again. Pass out, get up, drink it again. That's what Mahabharata was doing. Oh, meet me at the bar. Hmm? Hmm.
And we just scribble things on the napkins and poems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is to join him in his love life, to capture the heart of Bhagavan. You know, he can't hide his heart because he's a lover, so his heart shows. And if you meet someone who loves him, then you can know his heart. If you know his heart, then you can conquer him. Not by logic. So here this, these Sarvabhuma thought, oh, he's a young sannyasi, I better help him, give him some logic of the scriptures and so forth. The devotee said, what are you talking about? What can you teach him? He's Bhagavan. And Sarvabhuma said, well, we'll see about that. Nice sentiment you have, but what do the scriptures say? Bin Gopinath cited so many things from scriptures. But Sarvabhuma couldn't understand his scriptural presentation entirely. Okay, you have a particular interpretation of it like that. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. Gopinath concluded, one who can only know him if he has the mercy. Sarvabhuma said, well, how do I know you have the mercy? He said, well, because I see the symptoms and I can understand. You see the symptoms and you can understand. Still, Sarvabhuma said, anyway, whatever, you know. He wasn't convinced. This new religion coming out of Bengal, and this bhakti that says anybody can have God. Anybody can have union with God. The waiter says, hey, no, no. First, you've got to take birth as a Brahmin. Then in that life, you have to take sannyas. Then you have possibility for knowing Brahman. Brahman doesn't get close to the common people. Bhakti says, no. Krishna says, I'm for everybody. Enough of this. In fact, I say this, Krishna says, knowledge is a big problem. Intelligence is a big problem. We're talking about two things, karma and jnana, right? King Pratipuruja represented the desire for worldliness. That's the realm of karma. Sarvabhuma represents the desire for liberation, mukti, jnana. Gyan, knowledge, corresponds with what? If you have knowledge, what action corresponds with that? Renunciation. Detachment. Renunciation. If you have ignorance, what action corresponds with that? Attachment. What do we mean by that? What do you want? Do you want to be happy? Right. And you want to be happy in in an enduring way, right? So will you get happiness that endures in relation to things that don't endure? Does that make sense? Do you follow me? If you want to be happy forever and you seek eternal happiness in relation to things that aren't eternal, that's ignorance. you understand? So our attachment to material things that corresponds with ignorance. And knowledge corresponds with detachment. Sarvabhama wanted to educate Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in scripture, in Vedanta, that he would be detached, that he would have knowledge to be detached. He was a young man, so much potential for him to be, it would seem to be distracted by the world and so forth. The devotees objected, but Mahaprabhu didn't object. He said, he likes me. He wants to be do something nice for me. Why should I object? Maybe I can learn something from him. Mahaprabhu told us, maybe we can learn something anywhere from anyone. Why not move with that premise in life? God is speaking everywhere, directly and indirectly. So let me hear from Sarvabhoma. So we sat to hear Vedanta from Sarvabhoma for seven days. 
And what did Mahaprabhu do for seven days? He just kept quiet. He didn't utter a sound. This started to make Sarvoma nervous. Sarvoma thought he was a teacher, but the boy wasn't saying anything. And so he started, does he understand? Is he hearing what I'm saying? Does he know something that I don't know? Well, he can start to doubt himself. This way, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu created a teachable moment. You understand? And so Sarabhama said, well, you know, okay, I've talked for seven days. Do, do you have any question or comment? Or, or do, do you understand? Or, did you hear what I said? Mahaprabhu said, I heard everything, yeah. <laughs> well, then, what do you have to say? He said, well, I, I heard everything you said, but I didn't like any of it. He said, in my opinion, the sutras are clear like the sun, and what you have done, you're, you've spoken in such a way as like to create a cloud of your imagination, an imagined meaning to the scripture that takes all of the statements in the scripture that should be taken directly, you've explained in such a way as to take all of those indirectly. And those few that are indirect, you've taught in such a way as to take all those directly. It's like if you say, he lives in a house on the Ganga. Babaji lives in a house on the Ganga. That kind of statement has to be taken indirectly because there's no house on the Ganga. It's, I mean, it's on the shore of the Ganga. It's not on the Ganga. It would be in, you know, <laughs> it would be submerged. So some statements, they have to be interpreted because they're indirect. But he took all the statements for example, about Bhagwan, the eternality of the form of, of the Lord and of Bhakti and so forth, and interpreted them all indirectly. And a few statements that spoke about the God has no form, God has no name. Hmm? He interpreted all those directly. He took them all directly. This is backwards. Those few statements that say he has no form, for example, means his form is nothing. Nothing like what you think form is, what your form is. Nothing like that. Like I've given an example. If you're a nice devotee and you go to somebody's house and they're a meat eater and then you say, well, I'm really hungry. Is there anything to eat? They say, yeah, there's so much. You know, open the refrigerator. There's so much food there. Take whatever you want. You open it up and there's nothing to eat. <laughs> you mean there's so much food? There's nothing to eat there. You understand? <laughs> so these forms, they're nothing like Krishna's form. We're here today and gone tomorrow. So these these are kind of introductory statements to help get people on board. Like if you live in a cave, say you live in a cave your whole life, you have no idea what sun is, right? You're living inside a dark cave. So um, both of us are living in there, we're friends. I find my way out and I go and I see the sun. Oh my God. What does the sun mean? The sun means beautiful light, warmth, makes the mind enlivened. It means all these trees, vegetation, everything, life, the whole thing. None of this inside the cave growing. Nothing growing in there. So I have no idea. Well, this is all sun, manifestation of the sun. So I go back in the cave. What am I going to tell this guy? I just saw the sun. What am I going to tell him? He has no experience of any of these things. So I make a little crack 
And I say, you got to come out. The sun is like this. It's like there's light, there's vegetation, think trees are growing, and there's things to eat, and it's all coming from the sun. And and the guy says, what are you crazy? You know, you're going crazy. We live in a cave. This is this is life. You know, there's no such thing as a sun. So you crack a little hole. You can't get him to go outside. He just doesn't believe you. You crack a little hole in the wall, and pain of light comes in. You say, see, look, this is the sun. It's like this. He goes, wow, that's fascinating. Look at that. But how much is that about the sun? Something, but it doesn't tell us everything by any means about the sun. So the sutras, they talk to us in a beginning way, like this. They say this, if you want to know what is God, what is Brahman, then I have to give you some example. I cannot say what is Brahman to you. It's so, so different from what your experience is. What is God? If I'm I had to start somewhere. So I say this, if there's anything in this world that most resembles God, what is it? Sutra says, it's you. You resemble God. Your consciousness. God is consciousness. Matter is unconscious. That's different from God. You are consciousness. You're like God. You're God. It's an introductory way of speaking. You understand? You're God. If you want to know anything about God, it's you, like you. But it doesn't stop there. <laughs> it goes on. Explain. When we get to Bhagavatam, the whole thing comes out. You're God, but you're not God. <laughs> At the same time, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, but you can't tell a person that in the beginning. The head just goes spinning around. If you tell a child, okay, I want you to understand. You see that sun is moving like this around. Okay. Now, the earth is also moving around like this. Oh, okay. <laughs> then you say, not only that, the earth is also going like this. It's going like this when it goes like this. And the child's head starts to go like this. What? <laughs> you cannot tell him everything all at once. So the scripture is teaching in a gradual way and so forth and so on. So these statements are there. They're to be explained in this way. Sarvabhama had it all backwards. Mahaprabhu said, oh, you've just made a mess of the whole thing. Sarvabhama said, well, you say something. Then Mahaprabhu began to speak, explain Vedanta. And he quoted the Atmarama Shlok of Bhagavatam. Atmaramas chamunayone grantapi rukkane. In a very important verse. Uh, one of the key verses for understanding the Bhagavatam. It says, Sugadev Goswami, he wanted nothing. He lived in the forest, naked. He didn't even know if he was clothed or not. He wasn't aware of it. He had no interest in anything in the world. But when he heard some poems from the Bhagavatam sung by the woodcutter sent by his father Vyas, he found himself being attracted to that. Nothing of the world could attract him. Nothing in the world could attract him. But these songs attracted him, and they were songs about Krishna, about Krishna Leela. The idea is this. At a glance, Krishna Leela may look ordinary, but it's not. Otherwise, why Sukadev could be attracted to that? So Sarabhama said, well, that's a wonderful verse. And he said, I have an explanation for that. He gave nine different explanations. Mahaprabhu said, well done, well done. So then he told Mahaprabhu, will you say something about the verse? Mahaprabhu said, I don't know much, but I say something. He gave 60-some different explanations. Mahaprabhu was showing his opulence of jnana. 
<laughs> of knowledge to Sarvabhauma, who was a big jnani. He said, your knowledge is nothing. Look at this. Here's 60-some explanations. Sarvabhauma just fainted at that point. He said, this, he's Bhagwan. Nobody can do this. You know, later on, Mahaprabhu met Sanatana Goswami, and after teaching Sanatana Goswami everything, that he then in his books passed on to us and formed the Sampradaya on the basis of that teaching from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He was a scholar, Sarvam also. So when Mahaprabhu finished educating him in bhakti, he had a curious question, Sanatana. He said, you know, I heard that when you were in Puri, you explained this Atmarama Shloka of Bhagavatam to Sarvabhoma in 60 different ways. As, as a scholar, I was, you know, I'm a little interested in all those explanations. Could you say that again and explain those things to me? Mahaprabhu said, I don't know what I said. In the madness, something came out of me. But if you want, I'll say something. He gave another 60 explanations, completely different <laughs> from the one he gave Sarabhama. <laughs> this is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He said he, was, he's, he had knowledge. It was like, he used to have this stuff, one of the kids called Play-Doh. I don't know if they have it anymore, but you just, this little, you just twist it and make anything out of it you want. You know, He just took knowledge like this and made anything out of it. And the great logician, Sarvam, was defeated. He gave up this speculative way of knowing. We call it like ascending knowing. He accepted the descending way of knowing. He accepted that if God wants me to know, I can know. This is the perfect way of knowing. Then what is impossible becomes possible by His grace. By grace is possible. By revelation, by faith in Guru and Krishna, all things are possible. This is the idea. This is not unreasonable. This is logical, to point out the shortcomings of reasoning, the shortcomings of logic. We need a, a trans-rational way of knowing to become completely happy. Just by any exercise of the, of the brain, that's not going to satisfy the soul. Because the soul is different from the brain. It's different categorically. It's consciousness. Brain is matter. How just by exercising brain, you can know everything. You can satisfy the soul. No, not possible. It's not because you have a certain level of intelligence that you can therefore better equipped to understand God. By mercy you can understand God only. How to get that? How did Sarvamo get it? Actually he got it by the grace of the devotees. Gopinath Charger wanted him to become a devotee. And Mahaprabhu acquiesced. On the pretext of learning from him, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught Sarvamo. And this was a huge conversion. The most well-known, one of the two most well-known logicians in all of India had been conquered by this 24-year-old boy and become like a madman, chanting and dancing. What happened? After Mahaprabhu converted him, next morning, Mahaprabhu came to his house early in the morning, bringing Jagannath Prashad. He wanted to test Sarvam and see how well he was converted. Because he was a very pukka Brahman, an intellectual, and he followed very strictly all the rules and everything and so forth. And He didn't previously have any faith in bhakti. He thought that's just a sentiment. These people are troubling the whole life of we smartos you know, with, their, with their sentimentality. Chaitanya <laughs> Mahaprabhu came to his door, Wake up, Saraboma. I brought some Jagannath Prashad. Saraboma got up, he didn't wash his hands, his mouth, take bath, say his mantra, everything. He just took the prasad and honored it. 
Mahaprabhu said, very good. He's understood bhakti. <laughs> you, you're converted completely. I appreciate that. You have faith in Mahaprasad. Mahaprasad, Govindi, Nama Brahmani Vaishnavi, Svalpapunya Bhadam Rajan Vishwasunai Vajayate. Faith in Mahaprasad. So what does Uddhava say? And who is Uddhava? Shastravit. Uddhava was the counselor of Krishna in, in Dwarka. He knew Shastra inside out and backwards. He was Krishna's pundit. You know, Krishna was a prince there. So he had a pundit to advise him and everything. And all advice came from Shastra. This is Uddhava. What does Uddhava say? In Bhagavatam he says, just by taking your prasad, just by wearing the clothes that you've worn, taking the food that you've rejected, your remnants, just by taking this, we will conquer over the material world. This is a big jnani. He was a jnani bhakta, Uddhava. He making this point. Renunciates and the smartest, they're doing so many things to get liberation and so many rules and regular, so strict and don't touch this, don't eat here, don't just by taking prasad. Happily we cross over and beyond. Mukti and beyond. We get brained by this. Such a happy process you give Such a happy method. So easy, so user friendly. Take prasad, that's all. Sarvama glorified the Mahaprasad. He sang some songs, praise of Mahaprasad. Mahaprabhu said, Oh, he's so much appreciated. Yes, your, your, your conversion is complete. Later on, Sarvama showed another thing in terms of the measure of his conversion, how far he had come in the direction of bhakti. He was now going through the Bhagavatam and he came across a verse. What is that verse? Tate nukampam susamikshamana bhunani vatma kritam vipakam. It says, oh, those people who do not see that the environment that the world is giving them a hard time. They see everything that's coming, even the apparent difficulties, they're coming for a reason because of something I did in the past. They're collecting their debt now and they're freeing me of the debt. In the past I exploited, now the world is coming back to get its reward. I've taken, now the world is coming to, to collect the tax. I have to pay the bill. Most people are trying to avoid that. And then they just create another bill. And the karmic cycle goes on. The devotee stands firm in his bhakti. Standing firm in her bhakti, she says, whatever happens, let it happen. Let them come and collect their bill. I'm not budging from here. And I see it as friendly. Oh, you've come to collect. Now I'm free from the debt. I don't react to it. You come and become angry at me. I don't become angry at you. And then implicate myself further in karma. I just let it happen. Take it. I'm free now. Thank you. You freed me from that karmic debt. This way they wait, patiently. Bhagavatam says in this verse, who has this kind of mentality, they become the heir, like inherit, inherit, they can inherit the kingdom of God. Mukti Pade Sadayabak. It becomes the rightful claim to go back to God. But the word mukti is used. Mukti generally means liberation, different from prem. It's only removing the negative effects of material existence, but nothing positive, no love. So when Sarvam read this verse, he said, This isn't good. I'm going to change this. Jiveta yo bhakti pade sadayabak, he said. Mahaprabhu was very charmed by that. He said, But but you can't change the words of the Bhagavatam. 
Sarvamo was showing, he couldn't even tolerate the word mukti anymore. <laughs> but Mahaprabhu said, you see it like this, mukti pade means mukti at the feet of Bhagwan, which is bhakti, because inside of bhakti is mukti, in a healthy way. If we get mukti without bhakti, we get nothing. We get nothing. We get lost forever. No prospect for love, which is what our heart's beating for. That's why, actually, we're talking about two things, the jnana and karma. Desire for jnana and karma. Desire for exploiting the world or desiring from, of getting away from the world. In both cases, the world is the center. One wants to get away from it, the trouble of it. One wants to, thinks that the trouble of it will be overcome by conquering it and acquiring more. Of these two, jnana and karma, the bhakti school says a very funny thing. Karma is better, karma bilas is better than jnana bilas. This is like backwards reasoning for most people. They think, what? If you can overcome the desire to exploit the world by coming to knowledge, you can get mukti. And you're saying getting the mukti is worse than being in the realm of karma? Yeah, because if you get mukti, that's your goal. If bhakti is kind enough to give you mukti, because that's what you want, because only she can give it, because mukti is at her feet. Mukti has no existence independent of bhakti. She resides at the feet of bhakti. So if you get a little tiny bit of bhakti, and a lot of sense control and yoga and gyan, then you can get mukti. Bhakti give you mukti. And then you're lost in the Brahman. You don't even know that you're, you're an individual anymore. You don't even know there's anybody to serve. In the realm of karma, the devotees are moving. You can meet them. Opportunity for bhakti is there. So, we are more opposed to the desire for mukti than we are to the desire to exploit the world. We look at it like this. Which is the worst criminal? A guy who holds up the gas station and, and robs $20? Or the guy who sits at his computer and manipulates the corporation so that he makes millions of dollars out of shares that don't exist and so forth, like these corporate Enron-type people. And you probably don't know about some of these, some of these things. Here. It's like white-collar crime, you know, it's insidious. It's like, it's a real well-thought-out kind of crime. He looks like a nice guy. He's just, a, you know, just your real nice guy next door. He's not looking like a robber or anything like that. You would never think, but he's stealing millions of dollars out of people's bank accounts. More insidious. It's less visible and greater harm. Gyan like this. But gyan karmadi and avritam. We want to come out from both of these things. The desire for exploitation, the desire for renunciation for its own sake. Come to bhakti. Mahaprabhu told him, well, you keep the word mukti. It means you become liberated in the context of bhakti. In this way, Sarvabhama was completely converted and we learned from Mahaprabhu's example, what is the folly of coming to comprehensive and perfect knowledge simply by speculation, no, by revelation. This is how we can arrive at perfect knowledge. All right, so we'll stop there. See, Gauranga Mahaprabhu ki jai, Gauri Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Bindu ki jai, Gaur Premanande. Gaur.